I'm Danielle. I'm Fran. And this is Snow in the Mountains. Hey, Fran, it's great to see you. You too. My family is back from a great spring break in Florida. And I got to tell you, I missed recording with you and I missed hearing your stories, but I do actually kind of have something funny to tell you. Um, So we were down in Naples for the week and my best friends were up in Sandestin and she sent me a link to an article. Um, No surprise here, it's Florida, but a kilo of cocaine washed up on shore up near they were at. (laughs) And you know, what's so funny is that the article was called Snow on the Beach. Really? And I just thought that it was a great coincidence and a great segue into this week for you and I, because today we are going to be sharing the story that is the namesake of our podcast, um, the story called Snow in the Mountains. So I can't wait to get into that um, and hear this fascinating tale that actually is bringing us even closer to our hometowns. Um, And uh, let me interject at this point and say that the that the uh, term snow in the mountains was uh, derived from an article that was written in the Times newspaper in uh, 1983 by C.B. Hackworth, a local reporter. And I promised him that I would acknowledge his his, uh, words and that he was the author of the words of snow in the mountains. Well, I love that. And I think it's brilliant. And, um, you know, people are going to really understand the meaning of snow in the mountains after we get through this story. And this one will be a two parter. So we've got a lot to get into. But first, I wanted to express my sincere gratitude to anybody who has, you know, taken us for a spin. Our first two episodes were about um, Fran's most infamous case, the cocaine bear, which is a hot topic right now being a big you know, Hollywood production at this point. And um, we've had a lot of great listener feedback. Um, This is a good time to remind you, I guess, that if you have not yet followed the show on your favorite listening platform, you can do that um, by rating us, sharing with friends, listening weekly, um, subscribing to the show, asking questions in our Q&A, anything that you do like that um, listener really helps us out and gives us a bit more exposure. So we're so grateful for everybody who's listened so far. We actually have some international listeners as well, which is cool, but I wanted to acknowledge a few of our listeners so far. We've had some great commentary from a couple of folks. So we had um, Josh in North Georgia said, It sounds like Fran has a lot of great stories to tell, and I can't wait to hear them. Uh, We had Dave down in Atlanta who said, really well done. You got the right flow for the show. Can't wait for the next episode. And then we actually had a clarification. Uh, This was submitted from Angie R. via Spotify. She said, I just have a comment about the bear. Since the bear had been laying there dead for a long time and other animals eating it, I doubt it could be stuffed. How long was the bear dead? Um, Fran? Well, the the uh, pilot jumped September, uh, and then we found the bear in December. So he was actually, or rather she was on the ground for about three months. Okay. All right. Well, now that we've gotten all of the business handled... Are you ready to jump in to Snow in the Mountains? Yes, ma'am. All right. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. So as as we moved on with the investigation, we, uh, I think in all cases that I've participated in, my job I felt like was to uh, not only to, um, you know, gather all the evidence, but to be able to paint a picture for those people out in the public that are going to be the juror jury sure. to to look at this and determine what exactly happened, the truth of the matter. And in order to do that, you have to satisfy all of the questions that they would have if they're sitting and listening to the evidence. Yeah. So those are, those are the are the things that uh, Attorney Gillen. Uh, 
trained us to do. They, he, he, not he told unlike us how what to you're do doing it. for us right now, Fran. Yes. He, he told <laughs> us what, what to, to look for, where to get it, how to get it, mm-hmm. what he needed. And yeah. so in order to um, paint the picture so the people understood what exactly happened and how it happened, and, and of course why it happened was greed, but uh, to paint that picture of the, the who, what, when, where, why, and how mm-hmm. of the criminal activity, um, that's how we did it. I mean, that's how we investigate things. I can't wait to hear more about this. Let's take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back. Okay, Fran. Take me back to the evidence room. We're stepping all the way back to 1982 this week. Well, Danielle, as a young agent, I was aspiring to have some exciting case come my way. I remember very vividly sitting at the jail in Pickens County, Georgia, which is Jasper. And Pickens County was one of my cases along, I mean, one of my counties along with Gilmer County, Georgia, which is the county seat is LJ. And um, I was in Jasper at the jail, looking over some reports and just wondering, you know, this is pretty boring. I'm working burglaries and, you know, nothing really exciting is happening. So um, the very next day I was at the office and uh, I got a call from the sheriff's office in Gilmer County uh, that a farmer had uh, found something out in his pasture and uh, needed a, an agent to come over. They, they didn't know what it was. So I drove from Gainesville to a little area in Gilmer County on September the 8th of 1982. Now, the area that I went to was off of Highway 52. Uh, As you uh, come in on Highway 52 from the east side, uh, it's called Cartake. I've driven that uh, highway many times. Yeah, Cartake. And there's a big apple apple area there, apple trees, lots of uh, apple um, orchards are there. And there's a little store, a little grocery store there at the corner of Roy Road and uh, Highway 52. And it was one of the only stores within miles that had a public telephone. Now you gotta remember, no cell phones back then, only pay phones. Right, right. And so uh, the store was owned by the sheriff of the county. And um, his name was Sheriff Stanley and he had a son named Clay Stanley. And Clay pretty much, you know, uh, was a flunky at the store and ran the store when he, when his, you know, when his dad wanted him to, that kind of thing. So anyway, I turned right onto Boy Road and I went out that road about, I'd say, a mile and turned left into a driveway, a small brick home that looked across the road to a huge pasture with a stream that ran horizontal of the property and uh, up, a, up the mountain. Uh, there were probably at least 50 cows in this pasture. So I got out of the car. And at that time, I was driving a 74 Plymouth Fury. That was my, that was my uh, GBI car. Awesome. Uh, I... Um, went to the door and uh, the gentleman farmer came out and we sat there on the porch and in the, in the rocking chairs and I had my notebook with me and we looked out and I could see something blue right by the creek. And uh, he, he said, do you see that blue thing out there? He said, my cows have been, you know, kind of kicking that around and they got this white stuff on their face. And he says, I'm, I'm Here a bit nervous again. to go over there. <laughs> I'm like, well, okay, let's let's go see what this is all about. So it was, uh, you know, we had never seen, I say we, the investigators in North Georgia, had not seen cocaine uh, in this kind of quantity ever. I mean, well, and let's, first. 
you know, we should we should probably say to remind our listeners or those of you who are just joining us this week, the cocaine bear story mm-hmm. happened a f- almost to the day, one year after this story. So when we say that Fran's tenure in the GBI came at the onset of the major importation trafficking of narcotics through the Southeast and particularly the state of Georgia, we mean it. Like this is this is brand new to this area at this time period. That's right. So um, we uh, walked over there to the pasture. We went through the gate large metal gate got over there and uh one of the cows was kind of dazed and kind of walking around and obviously you know uh, has succumbed to whatever it had eaten out of this canister now let me describe the canister if you can visualize a large about a 16 inches across in diameter pvc only it was aqua blue in color it had plastic caps on both ends and um there the when it landed it obviously had dropped from somewhere it landed it uh broke the the caps off the ends of the tube so to speak and uh, the plastic bags with the white powder had broken and the cows had gotten into it so um i tried to look up the mountain to my left could see something off in the distance and again down to my right there was more tree line there was more wooded area and um i uh decided the uh, well let's take it in and see what it is so we together we we gathered it. it it probably weighed about 50 pounds got it to my car and the only testing kit i had at the time was would, would test for methamphetamine we didn't even have testers for cocaine wow so I had a little plastic testing kit, took a little bit of the white powder, put it in there, broke up the, the uh, capsules, shook it up, it tested positive. So I thought, well, this is just a bunch of math, you know, this is, this is pretty big, you know. So um, I, uh, I assumed it was meth. And um, I didn't really, something told me not to go to the sheriff's office. And so I called my boss on the radio, and then I went to the payphone right by the store and called him. Uh, and and unbeknownst to me, this payphone would would be like the uh, the gold mine for the communications for the the ground crew and and all of the major players in this investigation. Oh boy! So I um, I called the boss and said, "This is what I've got." And I think there's more. So uh, he sent some more agents over to help me. And uh, we eventually uh, had to uh, stay out all night. We stayed out all night. And the, the bad part about it was we knew they were monitoring our radio frequency. We felt like the ground crew was looking for it just like we were looking for it. Only well, they were more adaptable because they had sure. the four-wheelers. They had uh, probably were armed, you know, and here we were, you know, there was probably six of us out and all we had was, uh, you know, our, our cars and walking and we weren't, you know, the GBI didn't ha- have us, you know, in, in boots and, and, you know, the type of clothing needed for the woods at that time. Yeah, you guys were a bit more, what I think what it's referred to as plain clothes, right? That's right. You've got your badge, you've got your gun, you've got your wits about you, and that's how you do your business. That's right. So um, we found another canister further away. And um, so the boss, my boss at that time, uh, decided to call into headquarters to the director the director called the governor and he sent out the National Guard. The National Guard came and we were able to retrieve a thousand pounds of cocaine in these canisters. And they were uh, dropped over a two mile uh, air, aeronautical miles in, uh, in, uh, in uh, LJ, Gilmore County and further north. Uh, we subsequently also found a uh, a bladder tank 
Now, for those people that don't know what a bladder tank is, it's a, it's a rubberized tank that's put on the inside of the plane to uh, hold fuel so that they can, you know, ex extend their mileage and their trip to uh, come into the country. Yeah. So while we were, so while some of the agents were trying to recover the uh, cocaine in the canisters, um, another crew, including myself and another agent, we uh, went to different airports to try to see if we could find a plane that would have done this. So lo and behold, we ended up uh, calling the Dalton Airport. And the FBO, which stands for Fixed Based Operator, he said, well, yeah, we had this plane come in last night. It was a Beechcraft Queenier. And he said, you know, the, the people haven't come back and it's been leaking fuel and it's parked in this weird place. And uh, the tail number is 244 Lima Lima, which is N244LL. I remember it. Your ability to remember these details, Fran, is like just absolutely wild. <laughs> so uh, so uh, we rushed to um, Dalton, which is a good distance from uh, LJ. And we got there, myself and the other agent, and we saw the plane. And the operator said, well, I'm, I'm, I know it's open. The door is open and we're going to, you know, he opened the door. And as he opened the door to the plane, it was a type of plane uh, that the stairs would drop down off, out, okay. off the, the body of the plane. And when he did, I immediately saw the same aqua blue on the side of the door. And I said, stop this is the plane i knew it was the plane because of the blue on I, the door when it just falls in your lap like that fran i mean wow so i i, I was uh shocked so quickly that we could find it so from that point we went and got a search warrant uh, to protect the evidence we searched the plane and in the plane we found uh evidence that a bladder had been in the plane, a bladder tank. We found uh, documentation of where the plane uh, was registered, uh, you know, falsely registered. And we found evidence sure. <laughs> of um, who might be flying the plane. I remember one of the things I do remember specifically was there was a jacket uh, in the plane that was left. It was, um, it was one of those old jackets. It was a members only. Do you remember those jackets? They're called do. members only. Jackets. Yes, I totally do. Back in the back in the day. Anyway, it was a members only jacket. And in the pocket, when I searched the pocket, it had a folded piece of paper in there, and it and it said uh, it said home, and it had a phone number on it, and that wow. phone number belonged to the. Uh, belonged to Melvin Stevens. Melvin Stevens was the pilot of that plane. And Melvin Stevens was from Habersham County, Georgia. From Okay, that's those are our other neighbors. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then the other pilot we determined from documents was a man by the name of Dan Ayers. A-Y-R-E-S. He was also from Habersham County, from Cornelia. So there were two pilots on the plane, and obviously the canisters, which they kicked out. So um, the investigation further showed that these guys were staying at the Holiday Inn in Dalton. Now, the way that we knew that was through telephone records. The phone records from the residents we were able to get from the phone, from that one piece of paper. That one piece in of the paper. pocket. Mm -hmm. Led us to the records for Melvin Stevens, his phone records. Those phone records led us to the Holiday Inn records. And uh, we, we knew which room it was. We knew who registered into the room. 
the room they didn't even use a false name the room was registered no. to garland bud cochran a known dixie mafia uh guy that uh you know loved to be on the other side of the law this was his forte you know when he was in his 20s uh, he was bringing 6,000 gallons of moonshine to Atlanta. Now he's in his early 50s and he's importing, you know, a thousand pounds of cocaine. So he graduated. Well, I had always heard that pot was a gateway drug, but now you're telling me that moonshine's a gateway drug too. I think he skipped that step. <laughs> I think well, he skipped that step. He just wanted to get, get richer quickly. This could he, be, actually this lived, could... he actually lived in uh, Gilmer County in a uh, gated subdivision. But well, he, this has is a, maybe... he has a, 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 a pretty good criminal history. This is this is Bud Cochran? Yeah, Bud Cochran does, okay. yeah. So uh, once we found the hotel and we got the records from the telephone at the hotel, we found out, you know, who was calling who, so to speak. That was really the link. That was really the the map that we used to identify who were the players were. Yeah. Um, besides Dan Ayers and Melvin Stevens, uh, we determined that Clay Stanley, the sheriff's son, who used the payphone, mm -hmm. he had identified the payphone calling the hotel. So we knew that payphone was being used at Stanley's store. And then there was another guy that was called who was part of the ground crew. His name was Eddie Holt. Well, these two flunkies, I'll call Clay and Eddie. Uh, I think they're probably both still around. They're just two good old boys, you know, trying to make a dollar, poor things. <laughs> they uh, they uh, were um, somewhat sophisticated i will say because um basically they were part of the, part of the story as we will tell in the second episode goes into how they were taking the powdered cocaine and making it into liquid and i'm going to attempt to get a special guest on that will explain all that and how we uh located a remote barn in connection with this part of the case that um, they had a laboratory, and these guys were scientists. And um, the original Walter White, did. yeah, there is very interesting what they did with their, with their, um, you know, their their uh, limited educations. Yeah, I honestly had no idea that you could even liquefy that. That's well, like you said, that's the second half of the story. But you know, I can't. I'm stuck on this one fact, and this might be a dumb question, but why didn't he know his own home phone number? <laughs> what? Who leaves that in know. their pocket, unless, unless, Fran? The ja unless the jacket was something else. It's just the weirdest thing that that, that is so particular, that particular um, number would be in his pocket. You know, that was the link to everything. Right. I mean, that if he hadn't is... had that phone number in there, it would have been a little more difficult. I mean, we would have we still would have, you know, eventually found something out about it, but it, it just was, it was the key to the door. Yeah, absolutely. The key to the door. And um, Melvin Stevens, uh, he was indicted along with Garland Bud Cochran and Dan Ayers and Clay Stanley, the sheriff's son and Eddie Holt. Um, they were indicted in U.S. District Court in Atlanta in 1983. Uh, for you know importation of uh, cocaine and uh, I think they also did a RICO on them as I remember a RICO racketeering and corrupt organization and uh, the U.S. attorney at that time uh, that did this case was Craig Gillen and we w we met with him weekly when we were going before the grand jury and supplying them information in order to gain the indictment and further the prosecution. Sure. So uh, he was terrific. He was uh, very uh, motiv motivated, very uh, instructional to keep us on task as to what he needed to make sure all these people were going to jail. And he, he was, uh, he was a trooper. He was, he was good at his job 
and uh, we needed that instruction because we'd never had anything so big come into Georgia like this. Yeah, this seems like, well, I don't know. When you talk about this network of men um, across a few different counties, something tells me that kind of like you said in the last episode with Andrew C. Thornton, there could be a lot of spinoff stories from this group of individuals. Yeah. If you, uh, particularly if you read up on the Dixie Mafia, which is, might be an episode all by itself, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, criminal activity that they did in Georgia. Um, I think there's another, another podcast actually out there that um, one of the main players of the Dixie Ma uh, Mafia's son has recorded some of uh, the um, escapades and criminal activity that now, they if, did. If you're referring to In the Red Clay, yes. that was a fantastic, extremely well-researched and very informative podcast. Actually, <laughs> it was recommended to me by my neighbor, um, Josh, when we first moved up in this area, because I, I was interested in some local history. And he said, well, you don't know anything about North Georgia until you know about the Dixie Mafia. So yeah, highly recommend that podcast. That was wonderful. Very well done. Yes. Okay, we're back. Fran, we are in Ella J, right? Ella J, Georgia. That's right. And we've just found out who it is that's been dropping 50 pound canisters of cocaine across the state of Georgia. Again, here we are finding ourselves with cocaine and planes and pastures. Um, what happens next? You're preparing information for the indictment, right? That's correct. And um, as we are investigating, learning different things about the case, um, one of the things that we learned was, well, the question was, why did they kick this out? You know, what, what was the plan? Certainly wasn't to kick it out. That was probably the worst plan. Uh, yeah, they, they had a ground crew to try to recover it, but I don't think that was the original plan. So uh, we did get further information uh, that the plane, the Beechcraft Queen Air, was supposed to land at the Cherokee County Airport in Canton, Georgia, which is pretty much on the same parallel, as, so to speak, as um, Gilmer County. You just have sure. to go one county further north. Yeah. So um, the they were supposed to land the plane in Cherokee County. Uh, they flew to land at Cherokee County that September 9th, that September 9th, September the 8th. And lo and behold, a state trooper had stopped a car on Highway 5. Now, the, the, the big highway, I think it's 575, was not open at that time. Mm -hmm. It's still the two-lane. Highway 5 was open. It travels up to, travels up to uh, Jasper and then to LJ. So uh, a trooper had stopped a car, so he had his lights flashing. Okay, that can be seen from, from sure. uh, far and wide. Yeah. So uh, the plane decided, you know, I'm not stopping there. So they decided they were running out of fuel and they had to do something. That was the reason they did not stop at Cherokee County. So the ground crew that was supposed to pick it up at, at Cherokee County, which included Clay Stanley, the sheriff's son, and Eddie Holt, they went back to LJ and started scrambling because they didn't know what to do. Wow. The only thing they had was probably walkie-talkies at the time. So the plane did kick it all out, kicked all the canisters out. Uh, and then we recovered, you know, what we recovered. Did we did we lose some? Probably, yeah. Probably did. And But we did find the bladder tank. And uh, that was actually the last thing that we found. That was the last thing on the um, map, so to speak, that we created from the, from all the canisters that fell. So then, um, you know, that was one of the, the reasons that we found out why they kicked it all out. That wasn't what they were going to do to begin with. So I'm reading here, Fran, because you know how much I love to translate the money from 1980s cash 
2023 cash. And what I'm looking at here is an article from the Times Courier from, uh, this was September 7th, 2022. So this was like the 40 year anniversary article about this case. And this details that it was reported at the time over 500 pounds of cocaine were dropped from the airplane and eventually recovered worth half a billion dollars. That's incredible. That is incredible. Um, three duffel bags holding 18 fiberglass containers. So how much of this did you guys recover you know, at the onset versus what was there anything that was found significantly later that you were able to relate back to this case? I think the majority of, uh, well, I, back then, I don't even remember how much the quant, you know, the quantitative amount of the cocaine was. Um, it was in the 990 something pounds. I, so I just call it a thousand pounds. Wow. And I, I, it was all pure. It was not cut. And I do know this, that later on, uh, as I'm recalling more of the investigation, the uh, there was a young lady and she actually worked at the Western Sizzler in Gainesville. She was a waitress. <laughs> I can't call her name, but uh, we found out that she went to um, Quito, Ecuador with Melvin Stevens. Okay. And the purpose of going to Quito, Ecuador was to set up this uh, transaction to bring the cocaine back. And uh, that, that was pretty interesting that, that you know, uh, just a, a waitress from the Western Sizzler would end up Sizzler. on a trip to Quito, Ecuador with a, a cocaine smuggler. I mean, but, wild. Uh, you'd think she at least worked at like a steakhouse. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, one one of the things I, I I wanted to say, but about the you know being in the mountains and the cocaine the cocaine that we had brought here, a lot of these people that we are dealing with are people whose family were, had big ties to uh, moonshine, sure, and whiskey operations back then. Um, the uh, you know the moon, the moonshiners back in the the fifties and the sixties. You know, they were um, competent people. They were local people that went to church. Uh, they were just making a living. And it was not considered, you know, even though it was illegal, it was not considered um, bad. You know, it wasn't considered evil or anything like that. Well, I think but, when um, you look at Appalachian history and culture, you know, moonshine is a big part of not just the folklore, but the culture. So it's running these stills, um, you know, that's that's been around a very long time. Oh, yeah. Um, there's probably been many families, you know, in the North Georgia area that, you know, hasn't, haven't, hasn't had somebody connected in their family to a moonshine still. Sure. And, um, you know, moonshine was back then the only way to make money. Um, many people's, many people, have uh, have stories about you know moonshiners and their family, and what changed was uh, it got harder to buy sugar, which is one of the main ingredients for moonshine. Uh, sugar tripled, and um, it it took more. You know, it, it takes at least ten pounds of sugar to make a gallon of uh, whiskey. Wow! And so with inflation, the whiskey that uh, moonshine that's that sold for $6 a gallon, you know, was starting to, well, well, to be made for $6 a gallon was starting to be made, cost them $15 a gallon, so to speak. Wow. But today, you know, there's still people that are out there making moonshine, only they're trying to do it all legal and everybody's on the television trying to be the, you know, the number one distiller yeah. in the country or whatever. <laughs> yep, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, yeah, I can't imagine, you know, nobody is trying to run 
you know, a we'll call it a gray area operation. Okay. Nobody's trying to run an operation like that for peanuts. You know, if you're going to risk yourself or your associates or your family, there's usually some big money involved on the other side, or, you know, it's a stepping stone to something bigger. So yeah, I can understand that with the moonshine production sort of becoming a bit more challenging and a little less profitable, um, kind of like what we had said, you know, what's the next step? If you can apply that practical knowledge in one criminal activity or setting, why not dream bigger? Why not why not go go to the next place? Well, part of the um, that's exactly what they did. And you know, greed plays a, a big part of that and you know, supply and demand is everything. And if that's the only industry that's making any money in your county, then that, that's what's gonna happen. When I was, um, I know I'm digressing a little bit, but when I was a, a young agent, <laughs> not married and uh, just had come to Gainesville, one of the first things that, that they asked me to do was go undercover and buy moonshine. And I went to Dawson County and within one afternoon, I think I'd made 10 or 12 buys from 10, 12 different sites. No way. And uh, one of which was a was an older gentleman. Uh, he was actually in a wheelchair. And the reason I remember that case was because when we, when we went back to arrest these people at a later date, I went back to that specific house with another agent and we went to uh, arrest him uh, some agents went to the front door I went to the back door where I bought the you know, moonshine and um, he wouldn't let us in of course uh, I knew he had a shotgun but there was a panel in the door in the bottom of the door and I kicked the panel out and I was able to crawl through the panel the other agent pushed the door open at the same time I was crawling through the panel and the, the, the older man in the, in the wheelchair had grabbed the shotgun and he didn't shoot, but it was pretty darn close. I was able to get in and then he, he reached for a, a bottle, uh, a whiskey bottle that had a long, you know, like a neck on the top of it yeah. and came, came at me with that. And myself and uh, Jim Hallman, we were there, the other agent were there when we tried to, to arrest him total upper body strength. I mean, he would have put me down in a minute, you wow. know, but, but, but it was uh, incredibly scary that time, but yeah, you know, that was his livelihood. That was his extra money for milk, bread and eggs. So, um, you know, and I was taking that away from him. Did I feel bad? He was in a wheelchair and that he needed this extra money. Yeah, I did, but it was the law. Yeah. You know, it was um, what I was supposed to do. Well, it's tough. I mean, a lot of people who find themselves involved in criminal activity do it out of desperation, you know, because there's a need there either for money or to satisfy some, you know, personal desire or vendetta or, so, you know, there's always a motivating factor. And when somebody finds themselves in a position of desperation, you know, simply in survival mode, you know, that's tough. But like you said, it's, it's still the law. And um, boy, I, I can't, I can't say from personal experience, but I could imagine that with that desperation and with the work and the risk that you take in, you know, in order to achieve these things that boy, you won't stop easily. Um you know, to defend it and maintain it. So that had to be very terrifying dealing some with some of these men. Danielle, as we continue with our story, one of the main things I want the listeners to know is how uh, evolved the moonshine business became and what it created in uh, the United States with the drug business, how, how that came into being. In the 1940s, you had uh, these mostly men that were 
involved in making moonshine who learned it from from their cohorts and friends and up here in the mountains um we had we called them the moonshine czars people like bud cochran and a guy by the name of junior tatum his real name was ben k tatum um that both both of them by the way were indicted in federal court in south carolina uh with a DC four full of marijuana. Wow. Uh, at some time in their career. And that's one of and, the big um, right? Yeah. They, uh, they went from, from the moonshine over into drugs, marijuana, then of course into cocaine. But, but how that evolved was um, they, of course the greed of it, but I told you about the sugar prices changing sure. and things like that. There's a, there's a little poem here I'm going to read. It says, you get a copper kettle, you get a copper coil, cover with a new-made corn mash, and never more you'll toil. So it was, a, it was a quick way to make money. You really didn't have to work. Now, a lot of people said making moonshine was hard work. Sure. For, yeah. the, for the hours that you spent doing it, the reward was plentiful. <laughs> yep. Uh, they, you know, they often called the 100% corn liquor made in copper stills white lightning. I think you've looked at some of that. White lightning. Yeah. Interesting. Let me, um, let me tell you that they, they call the moonshine white lightning. Um, this according to the South Carolina encyclopedia, because moonshine is a white whiskey made surreptitiously and illegally and was once produced in great quantities in South Carolina. And, you know, of course, the Appalachian region in general, but it got its name white lightning because of its color and the kick it delivers when consumed. So probably not totally different than cocaine. Maybe a little bit gets the job done. Right. And you know, at, at, at part of its uh, heritage, it was also pretty deadly because in the um, 19 i think it was about the 1940s you know we still had a lot of copper around and then um 1950s many people died from drinking moonshine that that cochran had shipped to atlanta um part of this was a result of the fact that he was had switched from copper over to uh lead poisoning created from you know uh different sheet metal vats that they used in uh you know in the creating of the moonshine somehow i and, knew you were gonna say that <laughs> yeah and uh the most one of the most famous cases in this period of time was a guy by the name of fats hardy and he was actually from gainesville and uh he was a, a moonshine king and later sentenced to life imprisonment in the late 1950s after uh, many people uh, died from drinking his moonshine wow unreal so those are some of the some of the interesting things about that and uh, the beliefs about it and things that have happened in the past. Yeah. But um, I think what what's going to happen uh, and next is uh, we're going to see, you know, once uh, once moonshine it's still around, then it went to marijuana. They don't import marijuana like they used to. They just grow it still try to bring it in it's too bulky now so they just try to grow and of course all this many states are trying to make it legal sure. but now we're into you know cocaine and, and other drugs and uh, fentanyl is pretty deadly um, yeah. so we don't know where all this is going to end up in our life in the future of our children i just know that um when when a man decides to bring these drugs in and becomes greedy through the sale of all this. It destroys people's lives and, and uh, creates havoc on the world. Really? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a, it's a never ending cycle. I mean, you know, you just explained how all of this has evolved through the years. And uh, it seems to me like, things just keep getting deadlier faster, like fentanyl. It doesn't sound like a lot of people who toy with that survive it, you know? 
they're they're getting a lot of a lot of fentanyl in through uh, Mexico. I mean, uh, kilos and kilos are coming in through cars through, from Mexico uh, right now. Through uh, and customs is catching a lot. I think a lot of the border patrol are doing a great job, and you know the government needs to support whatever they need out there. They've got X-ray machines and all of the uh, you know the technology to help them find it, but. You know, uh, that's uh, that's where it needs to get stopped. Yeah, there's actually a recent case uh, that's going on currently in California. Um, I can't remember her position, but um, somebody in a in a pretty high standing uh, law agency position is actually being indicted. Um, she has been having fentanyl shipped in um, mm-hmm. to distribute from China. Yeah. So wild. Um, well, we're going to wrap up this week by talking about something very interesting that you found, um, while in, I believe it was Dawson County. Oh yeah. Um, tell us about your date with the dogs, Fran. (laughs) You know, when we're talking about moonshine, I think this was probably the second or third encounter that I had with a, with a moonshine still, this particular occasion, we had, we being the other agents and I, had gone to a house to actually search for marijuana. And it was in Dawson County. And uh, we pulled up and uh, took the paperwork in. And as we pulled into, they had a, had a garage attached to the house. And there was a dog pen behind the house, which was had a fence around it. And as we pulled into the garage, I could smell a strong odor of alcohol in the garage. And I looked over and I could see a hose on the ground, like a garden hose, mm-hmm. and it, like a spigot. I'm like, okay, well, you know, there's other stuff in the garage. It wasn't, it wasn't really cluttered, but it was just, you know, it, it was pretty well kept. So we went in and we found some marijuana and, you know, not, not big quantity, not, you know, pounds or anything like that, but we found the marijuana we came to, to, to uh, search for. So I go back out to the garage and I see these white plastic gallon jugs and I picked one up and I sniffed it. Yep. Alcohol, moonshine. So I said, okay. So I lifted up the hose and it went through a window in the garage outside. I followed the hose down to the dog pen, which was below the house. What kind of dogs were they? I have to know because I love dogs. They were badass dogs. <laughs> they would bite you in a minute. Type. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure they were pretty well trained. <laughs> so so uh, I went and got another agent, got the owner. I said, you're getting the dogs. They're coming out. <laughs> Put them in the house. I'm not getting bit tonight, buddy. <laughs> so, so anyway, he got the dogs out. And I went in and now it's your typical dog pen is probably maybe quarter of an acre fenced and a couple of dog houses in there, you know, dog bowls and stuff like that. Well, I thought the hose had something to do with watering the dogs, but the hose went down underground, which was the weirdest thing. I'm like, this doesn't compute. So I opened the gate. And uh, walked in, and the sound that my boots or whatever shoes I was wearing at the time was making on the ground was that of wood. I could I could hear wood, so I stepped back, and I, you know, cleared the path wherever I was, the leaves and whatever, and I found wood. I got the other agent to help me, and we lifted the wood up, and lo and behold. We flipped it back over like it was a four by eight sheet of wood. Okay, we flipped it back over and there were steps, like um, cross tie steps going down in the ground under the dog pen. We get down there and there's two uh, huge, they had to be 200 gallon uh, vats for, and a still. There were two stills down there actually. In, wow. in the dirt they had dug out and put the dog pen on top of the stills and it was so nasty oh, <laughs> and it was gosh. so dirty i'm thinking who would ever want to drink this stuff oh I mean, sure. they got to be crazy to drink this stuff but that's what it was he had a pump 
and he was pumping it up to the garage and putting it into the plastic gallon containers and selling it right from the garage. He never, he really, he, had, he was ingenious. He didn't have to do much work. He just go pump it into the containers and sell it from the garage. I mean, I'm, Fran and I are recording on Zoom so she can see my jaw on the floor. But just <laughs> the, the mastery, you know, the creativity of some of these guys is just, yep out of this world and it was you know, hysterical this, is, this it totally hysterical. echoes breaking bad which was one of the best tv series ever by the way absolutely love breaking bad but you know you're just walking through north georgia and lift up the floor outside i just nobody has stories before, like <laughs> before i knew what moonshine really was and actually seeing a still you know i kind of likened it to drinking kerosene <laughs> That's not the only thing I can say. Well, I've had moonshine and it is like drinking kerosene. And this girl cannot, I mean, you know, they people say, pour me three fingers of whiskey. Yeah, no, 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 no. I, I couldn't drink that much moonshine. That is not my style. It's not my taste. Well, I think, I think Jack, Jack Daniels has a down pad. I don't think we have to worry. <laughs> And the health department is involved right. in that That's production. Right. So we know that it's clean. Well, Fran, I know that we have a ton more very interesting details to cover when we wrap up this case next week. We're going to be talking about Garland Bud Cochran. That's right. Who um, is going to lead us into the Dixie Mafia, which is a whole can of worms that we could probably do many episodes on. Um, but what I really can't wait to discuss next week is this laboratory in an old barn um, where we're going to talk about the conversion of cocaine into a liquid for distribution. Um, I think this is going to be really fascinating because I wasn't even aware scientifically that this was something that could be done. And again, the ingenuity and the creativity um, are two of the most fascinating components to these true crime stories that you're sharing with us. So I can't wait for you to share. Me either. Every time I smell eucalyptus now, I think of these guys in the barn making this stuff. <laughs> you, you, things, I might have to change my favorite essential oil blend after we yes. get through with this story. Maybe but, frankincense or lavender. I don't yeah, know. absolutely. <laughs> Something a bit musky. That's right. Um, well, thank you so much, Fran, for sharing this half of the story with us. I, I can't wait to dig into into the next part. And um, okay, Danielle, it's a pleasure as always. Well, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, follow us on your favorite platform. Fran, you are one badass chick. Well, thank you. Bye for now. And please behave. See you next time. Snow in the Mountains is recorded in North Georgia by Fran Bishop and co-host and producer Danielle Eigelhart. Follow us on social media at snowinthemountains.pod or email us at snowinthemountainspodcast at gmail.com. Please be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and follow to help us out. And be sure to listen in every Wednesday for a brand new episode. <laughs>